tortoise. Hello, it's James. I get unhealthily excited on the day of a fiscal event, and we are meeting here just hours after the Chancellor delivered his autumn statement. We're recording the news meeting live in our newsroom in Tortoise, and we hope that you, the audience, will join in. Welcome to the news meeting. The major breakthrough in the Israel-Hamas war. The Israeli cabinet has approved a deal to secure the release of dozens of hostages being held by Hamas in Gaza. Sam Altman, the co-founder and ousted leader, will now return to OpenAI as CEO. England's chief medical officer, Professor Sir Chris Whitty, has told the COVID inquiry that the first lockdown in March 2020 was imposed a bit too late. The Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, has set out his tax and spending plans, which he says will help grow the economy. Our plan for the British economy is working, but the work is not done. As you can hear, there's a fair amount going on in the world. There's hope in the Middle East. There's complete bewilderment at what's happening on the West Coast. And there is perhaps no surprise at all at what's being said at the COVID inquiry. But we are going to start tonight by thinking about what the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, has said about the future of the UK economy, what that means in terms of tax, what that means in terms of spending, what that means in terms of public services, and what that might mean in terms of a general election in 2024. For that, I'm delighted that I'm joined by Kat Nealon, who's our political editor. Thank you very much for having me. You, I'm sure you've had as exciting a day as I have watching the Chancellor. I feel somewhat less enthusiastic about fiscal events, actually. Um, it's my it's my strongly held belief that political journalists should not cover them, and should that's not, not co- should, well should, should, should not play second fiddle to people like Claire. So <laughs> I, we're also joined by Claire Barrett. We're very excited, Claire, to have you here. Claire mm-hmm. is the consumer editor of the FT, which means that she does possibly the most difficult job in the FT. I used to work there, so I know a little about this. There are economics editors who can give you the big picture, the macro picture, and there are business journalists who will delve into particular businesses. But trying to translate the economy and business into human, which is what is required if you're going to make sense of personal finance, well, that's to you, Claire. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's a very flattering introduction, but I do speak human, and I'm looking forward to speaking human with all of you. And then Basha Cummings is joining us. Basha, if you listen to her voice, you'll know her. She is the host of the Sloan Newscast, and also she launched this week a long investigation called Walter's War. Basha, just tell everyone what it's about. It is about a sort of Walter Mitty-style character who created this sort of fantasy life for himself uh, and over the last 10 years has risen to the top of um, the civil service, national security, uh, the MOD, and launched this remarkable company called Rebellion Defense, inspired by Star Wars, which is uh, selling artificial intelligence to the military, except does it really work and is any of it really true? Exactly. Have What's the story beyond the story? <laughs> yes. That is what we try to get yes. to. Um, uh, Claire, the way this works is that we try to figure out what should really lead the news. So will you kick off, long story short, what do you think should be leading the news as we get to the end of this autumn statement day here in London? Well, my headline would be, when is a tax cut not actually a tax cut? <laughs> oh, I think that kicks the election way back into October. <laughs> Kat? Mine is a sign of things to come, brackets, but not that. Can I say, what's going on here? It's becoming like cryptic budget day. 
Um, Basher. Mine's no better on the cryptic front. Uh, a crystal orb for the NHS. <laughs> By the way, you've spent too much time <laughs> yeah. covering Star Wars-like stories. Yeah. Um, Claire, why didn't you go first? Okay. When is a tax cut not a tax cut? Okay, so we were all expecting, weren't we, there to be a tax cut of some sort in the autumn statements. And me and my colleagues at the FT and on other papers in Fleet Street have been busy speculating about what that might be. And the kind of speculation has shifted. You know, a couple of weeks ago, it was very much inheritance tax. And, you know, that, frankly, could be an election winner for the Tories. It doesn't affect very many people, but a lot of people really fear it and hate it. But in a cost of living crisis, it just doesn't really look right. So I think they sort of flew the kite on that one, put it away. Um, then we had income tax. Now, that would have been a really easy slam dunk headline in the Daily Mail if you'd taken a penny or tuppence um, off, off income tax. I, in fact, had a penny and a tuppence in the office today for the Instagram reels, <laughs> um, if, if that was the case. Uh, but alas, he's gone for cutting national insurance. Now, can we do a hands up? Mm-hmm. Hands up anyone in the room who could explain with confidence what national insurance is and where on their salary, roughly, it is applied. Put your hands up. I, won't, I promise I won't pick on you because my point is there are no hands up. N- n- not is. in the room and not on the panel. <laughs> so very, very quick lesson. National insurance, it's basically income tax by another name. Nominally, it goes towards funding the NHS and your state pension looking after you when you when you retire but it is a 12% tax on a slice of your income roughly between about 12,500 and 50,000 and then it goes down after that so by cutting in um, national insurance by 2% he will have saved the average worker about 450 pounds somebody on a salary of 35k actually be saving a little bit more if you're um, earning more than that, £50,000 and, and above, your saving per year will be about 750 quid. So it's it's not massive. It's cost a lot of money, £9 billion. People don't really understand it in the same way that they would do with income tax. But the broader point is it's not really a tax cut because what we've seen from this government from day one is that they have frozen those tax thresholds, the rate at which different higher rates of tax are applied to the money that we earn, The money that we earn has been pushed up by inflation, so more of our pay has been pushed up or dragged up into those higher tax bands. Hence, we have this expression, fiscal drag. And the OBR, the Independent Office of Budget for Responsibility, they said that the impact of these cuts, even though they will have a small amount of beneficial relief for 27 million workers, the impact will be dwarfed um, by what's been happening with, with, with fiscal drag. And the tax burden will still rise overall in each of the next five years to reach a post-war high of 38% of GDP, gross domestic product, in so five years' time. Again? A bit slower. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, they're cutting taxes, but the amount that they're cutting by isn't going to offset the fiscal drag that's happening from freezing the levels of salary at which the higher rates of tax apply. So, for example, £50,000 is where you start to pay higher rate tax. Anything you earn above that taxed at 40%, that hasn't changed Um, And it hasn't changed for a long time. It's also the point at which your child benefit starts to be tapered away, which is very costly for families. That hasn't changed since 2013. If that band had gone up at the rate of inflation, it wouldn't be £50,000 from 2013. It would now be more than um, £65,000. So millions more people have been dragged into these, not just higher tax bands, but also really fiddly and annoying bits of the tax system that can result in unexpected 
bills. You know, there's nothing worse than a tax bill except an unexpected um, tax bill, um, we say, in the personal finance world. So people won't really feel much richer um, as, as a result of this tax cut. And that was his big moment um, in the, at the end of the budget today. That's really the best that he can do because he's put more of the fiscal firepower into giving cuts to um, tax cuts to businesses. But I think that was the right thing to do because he hasn't stoked inflation, but will it win him an election? Can I just ask you one question, just to go back to a comment you made right at the beginning, which is over the last few weeks we've had, I think you described it, you know, kite flying. Mm. It's the inheritance tax, kite was flown. It, it was, was the inco- income tax, kite was flown. Mm. Do you think that editors should ban... Any story about a budget or an autumn statement in the two weeks before the Chancellor stands up? Because aren't they just gaming the public, gaming the political argument, and we journalists are complicit in that? It's difficult, isn't it? Because I think that newspapers, podcasts should contribute to the public debate around these issues. And As a journalist, I spend more time, actually, I'm probably going to get shot for saying this, I spend more time reading the reader comments underneath the FT stories than the actual story itself, because, you know, so many of the reader comments are bloody good, frankly, and I want to know what you're all thinking. So when we do have these kites flown, whether it's the Treasury briefing, you know, I don't know, I'm not a lobby journalist, you guys will have more insight into that, but... We have a public discourse about whether it would be acceptable to have a tax cut that would favour the richest families in Britain. Um, We can have discussions about the tax cuts that really needed to be raised. I mean, a not very sexy one that has been dealt with finally in today's autumn statement is how we set the level of the local housing allowance. Now, it doesn't sound um, very inspiring, but actually, if you're somebody on housing benefit who's renting in the private sector, that could be a lifeline for you because that has been suppressed since 2020 and all kinds of charities have been furiously lobbying the Chancellor to address that, which he had. So we we have had the discourse shift to help those on the lower incomes. Of course, they're not traditional Tory voters. This is the problem for the Conservative Party. But I think it was the right thing to direct most of the firepower at those with the least. Kat, what do you think about the pre-briefings? So I started out as a financial journalist myself. So I do have a little sort of bit of background in in sort of pensions and things like that. Um, And so I am slightly scarred by far too many years of covering the budget and and also as a political journalist covering it. And I I do get really annoyed by this kite flying stuff. Um, I get what you're saying about it, it being a sort of important part of the discourse, but that discourse can happen at other times in different ways in parliament i guess yeah in parliament and you know representations to your mp but you know kind of people can make their views known when we actually know what is on the table i get very frustrated with the this sort of um strain of journalism which is obsessing over what is going to be announced because that announcement is going to happen one way or another there's no nothing that we do in the days weeks beforehand is going to change the fact that that announcement is coming and it might maybe affect what is in the, the announcement depending on the response to it but it's coming nonetheless we should be spending our time as journalists finding what isn't going to be announced so, so having given a slight kicking to pointless speculation let's get into some pointless speculation the, <laughs> the, the national insurance contribution decision the next decision had 
as far as I can see, split political judgment on the likelihood of a spring versus October election. There were some people saying, Kat, if you're essentially reducing, at least as far as national insurance is concerned, the amount of money people are paying, that suggests, and from January the 6th, I think it is, that suggests that they may be opening the door to a spring election. And others are saying it's only when you make an income tax cut, it's only when you, as Claire says, announce a penny or tuppence off income tax that you signal to Tory voters this is what conservatism means. And so it must mean that we're going to wait until the autumn. I mean, we are going to have months of this now. I don't know that necessarily what happened today has any kind of real significant bearing on whether it's May or whether it's October, I think the far more significant thing is the small boat season. And that because now they can claim, albeit with some smoke and mirrors, to have hit the three economic targets that Rishi Sunak set himself um, nearly a year ago now. They haven't hit stop the small boats and they haven't hit cut NHS waiting lists. Now that last one, again, there'll probably be some smoke and mirrors and they'll say, well, we've hit this one, you know, this this one, there's one fewer person on it, so that's fine. Small boats is a very, very visible uh, example of a target that has not stopped, uh, not been hit. Now, obviously over the winter, that will die down. Um, but if you go until October... If you wait for October to run an election, you will have a whole nother summer of small boats coming. And people were saying to me last week after the Rwanda decision um, and also after the reshuffle, interestingly, they, they felt this was likely because they felt that the uh, sort of appetite for leaving the uh, European Convention on Human Rights was diminished within cabinet, that it was more likely to be a May election than an October election on that basis. Personally, I think Rishi Sunak is just not the sort of roll a dice, let's just go for it type guy. So I still think October. Basha, Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement. (laughs) (laughs) Coming to this from the position of human rather than somebody who's covered fiscal events or lobby journalism. I mean, I think what I gleaned from today is I don't really know what the story of the statement was. And when even when you look at the the Tory position on national insurance, there was a good point made by James Johnson, who was the pollster under Theresa May, who said he summarised it by saying that there have been four iterations of the Tory position on national insurance. One was increase it for the NHS, cut it under Liz Truss, oppose a cut under Rishi Sunak, and now a bigger cut than expected. And if you're thinking about this is all about how we're getting into next year, how they're positioning for an election, what is the story that you take away from this statement? Cat. <laughs> the, story, the story that you take away from this statement and, and the story that I will be making the case for as part of my pitch is that Rishi Sunak doesn't really understand his party and is a bit scared of it um, because he was obviously involved in most of those decisions and he was the one that increased the national insurance contributions because of the health and social care levy, which I'm not sure much went into health and social care in the end um, and has sort of, you know, basically tried to sort of roll back on that because he's associated with this totemic rise and therefore needs to be associated with a totemic cut. But he doesn't quite get that people, once once you've raised it, you can't just get the goodwill back by cutting it again. Claire, can I just ask you, how much is all this ornamental? When you think about cost of living and what's happening to the disposable income people really have, Mm. 
Does any of this make much difference? Well, interestingly, the OBR, the Office for Budget Responsibility, they said today that living standards, as measured by real household disposable income per person, will be 3.5% lower in 2024-25 than they were before the pandemic. So living standards are going backwards. But that's less backwards than they were predicted to in March, a small win. But nevertheless, it's a bit like the tax cut not being a tax cut. It's still the largest reduction in real living standards that we've seen since the ONS records began in the 1950s. And like, you don't need me to tell you that people are feeling poorer. Um, I remember when I worked at the FT after a certain period of time, feeling very proud of the fact that I understood what starting from a low base meant. Mm-hmm. And now I've learned a new term of art, which is less backwards. This is yeah. the <laughs> less backwards, a very useful phrase, Claire. Kat, let's go to the politics then of this. You sort of gave a hint of it. Yes. So the reason why I was double checking with Claire about the tax burden, and actually, whilst we've been talking, I've had some texts from Conservative MPs, because I've been trying to speak to as many of them as possible this afternoon is because my pitch is predicated around the idea that at Conservative Party conference a few months ago, several MPs signed up to what they called the tax pledge, that they would block any legislation, vote against any legislation that increased the tax burden. And at the time, I thought that is clearly directed at the autumn statement Uh, and possibly the budget if things go badly. Um, And if they rebel on the finance bill, then that is a confidence measure. That means they will risk losing the whip. Um, And depending on the numbers, it could be quite bad for Rishi Sunak's leadership as well. Uh, Now, before we came on, I was speaking to one of the signatories of the pledge, and he basically said, we won it effectively um he said how can you say that with when the overall tax burden is going up to 38 percent well because this is the smoke and mirrors bit right so it's kind of hidden in the small print since coming on i've had a text from someone saying things are unraveling people have got to the fact that the tax burden is actually increasing and they're not happy about it so will they rebel on the finance bill Or will they have considered that enough has been done because of the way that it's kind of put around? Again, this is why political journalists shouldn't be doing it. Headline rates versus tax burden over multiple years and so on. Uh, I don't know. They might. How many people signed this tax pledge? I think it was about... 30 in the end 25 to 30 they did a sort of online campaign it was jake berry's kind of baby but liz truss was involved pretty patel signed it various former ministers there was quite a sort of groundswell of, of movement around the growth coalition and do you um, think that growth coalition is coming back do you think they'll say in response to this budget we need a different kind of conservative government a different kind of conservative economics so to my point about small boats being the bigger issue. I think that conversations started last week after Suella Breverman was sacked and the Rwanda decision was made uh, by the Supreme Court. And there is a huge uh, amount of scepticism about Rishi Sunak's appetite to push forward with it, even though he has said that he will bring emergency legislation forward, do this treaty with Rwanda and so on and so forth, not going to allow foreign courts to block us and block the will of the people. People don't believe that he's really into this. They, they point to the fact that he's brought David Cameron into the cabinet. 
that he's promoted uh, James Cleverly to Home Secretary, who is, uh, we are allowed to swear, aren't we, called the um, idea of leaving the ECHR batshit. So it's a pretty light swear word, isn't it, for that idea? <laughs> I'm very well brought up, James. So there is there is a, a healthy degree of scepticism about whether he even wants to, let alone if he can do this. So there have been meetings taking place. There have been the ever-present discussion around letters going in. Letters to the 1922 committee saying that there's no confidence in the leader yes. of the party and asking for a... A vote. But... The way that one person put it to me today is, let's say they get that vote, he'll win it, right? There's not a majority that would, uh, that is ready to roll the dice again, because who's the alternative? So if there is going to be a push, and I'm not saying there isn't, I'm not sure it's happening right now, but if there is going to be a push, it would need to be coordinated. And there would need to be a leader in waiting, and, and there's not. And there would need not. to be a leader in waiting, and there's not, Yeah. By the way, just so you know, Basha, grimacing doesn't work in podcasting. I know you've done a lot of this. <laughs> I, just, I just find it so baffling, the idea that there are people putting it, like putting in letters, like what, but, what, to what end? Well, okay, so this takes me back to the nub of my pitch, which was a sign of things to come, brackets, but not that, which is that I actually think a sign of things to come is the tax pledge is a, is a sign of the kind of pressure that MPs are going to be putting on. There's going to be rebel amendments. There's going to be back-channel conversations. There's going to be pushing. We already saw it with things like the net zero U-turn. That was brought out of conversations with various uh, MPs, but quite a small minority of MPs, that he did a U-turn. Now, we know that he wasn't necessarily always the biggest advocate of spending lots of money on green technology, but he basically did it because MPs sort of told him to. And we can see, I think, more of that over the next few months. So that is the sign of things to come. All right, let's take a beat, and then we're going to come back and hear from Basha. I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Basha, what's your story? So my story is um, the awarding of the biggest NHS contract in its history, uh, patient data management, uh, to a US spy technology firm that many of you might have uh, seen reported over the last day called Palantir. And purely because I've spent the last few months of my life in this kind of world of strange military tech intelligence company, it's worth mentioning that Palantir is one of the crystal orbs from Lord of the Rings. Um, oh, is it really? It is. And that's why the Palantir logo is like a little circle with a 
sword-like thing underneath. Uh, Basha, we do just have to go back to Walter's War because one of the things that came up in that whole story is the extent to which tech bros love naming their companies. They love it. After there are so many. Lord of the Rings, Star Wars. Star Wars. It's mostly Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, actually. But um, when I started checking the names of some of these companies, I ended up going on these sort of fan wiki, like Lord of the Rings wiki sites where they have the original Elvish for some of the... And I thought, no, this is ridiculous. Anyway. Uh, Palantir. So, <laughs> Palantir. I think I know how you must all feel when I talk about ISIS now. <laughs> yes, welcome. <laughs> so Palantir is this um, quite controversial company that was uh, set up by Peter Thiel, the libertarian billionaire. And it has gotten involved in the NHS in quite a slow way. During the pandemic, it uh, started doing essentially pro bono work for data management um, for a one pound contract that turned into a few million and it's long been thought that they're going to be awarded this big new contract for a basically a data fusion project which is to try and link up all the bits of data between different trusts which is sorely needed if you've ever been to a doctor or in my case a midwife in the last few months um and i think what's interesting about this story is there's been this kind of knee-jerk reaction that this is terrible that that palantir is a controversial company and it is and we can get into that but the idea that you know there's a real question over patient data safety what are the safeguards that are being put in how can we be sure that one private company won't try and make money from this data and also the problem of having a monopoly that this one company is going to deal with all of this but Bash, can i just be the news bore in this is this one of those cases where suspicion trumps substance in the story in that people know there is a problem with data management in the NHS. You do need to hook up different data sets. Actually, that capability is incredibly valuable, and it's not a surprise that companies that have worked in many countries with many other government departments have potentially better capabilities than the UK does. And my understanding was that the NHS had gone out of its way to say, actually, the data will be anonymised, you won't have access to it if you work for Palantir without authorisation, and there's a third-party company that's going to check whether or not those protocols and those efforts at data privacy are in place. Yeah, all of that is what they've said. I think there are big questions. There have been statements from Amnesty International. David Davis has been very um, vocal about this. To to say um, (laughs) that's fine to have the aspiration. In reality, this is such a complex data set that having, you know, there is no system in the world with such a big data set that exists where people are happy with those safeguards. So, you know, there's a there's still a long way to go to prove that that's possible in this case. Can, can I ask you one question about the way in which this plays politically? And I'm just to cat what you think about this too, which is people always reach for this privacy issue, and I can understand why people get spooked by it. I'm worried about a competition issue, which is you're essentially handing an incredibly valuable data set, even if anonymized, that people are going to be able to see patterns of health, patterns of healthcare, demographic patterns, that must be enormously valuable. And that's going to a US company rather than a, either UK government or a UK yeah. business. But there's an interesting... They're not allowed to sell it on though, are they? No, they're not. Um, but there's an interesting point here, which is that like 
because this type of what's called data fusion is so complex, it's matching different bits of data from different parts of an enormous organization. My understanding is that really the only companies that kind of have the capacity to build that sort of platform are ones that have been trying to do it in an intelligence and military setting. And I think the legitimate questions about Palantir is, like, this is a company that usually works with the CIA, with border enforcement, with policing. They've been talking about their technology being rolled out in Ukraine. But the point that we've been talking about a lot over the last few weeks in relation to the other story that we've been investigating is, we don't really know how any of this works. We don't know where the scrutiny is. We don't know how involved in Ukraine Palantir have been. Um, we know that Peter Thiel stood up at Oxford University Union in January and said that the NHS makes people sick and that the UK has a, a sense of Stockholm syndrome with the NHS. And this is the guy whose company has been awarded this contract. I should say that then the company tried to um, clarify that he was speaking as a private individual. But I think, you know, you, there, both things can be true. There is a desperate need for a new manage, data management system. Uh, equally, is Palantir the best fit for that? I think that is worth investigating. Kat, what do you think? Yeah, I, I share Bash's sort of... Um conflict on this um i mean i don't know enough about the world to know is palantir the only option what are the other sort of meaningful companies that could uh competitively tender for it presumably the contract has a time period that means that it will come up for renewal and other companies can then well there is a there is a it is part of a consortium so it's with Accenture and and a few other companies. Mm. I can't remember what they are off the top of my head. So, Palantir is the kind of lead partner, but there yeah. are other companies involved. But I have to say, my my kind of overarching view is the NHS is in desperate need of reform, and this will, I think, help speed things up. And this idea that it's able to spot trends—that's a good thing. That means that we can have much earlier detections if it's used properly. I think this is the beginning of really clever tech being used in a way that could actually revolutionise our healthcare system. Claire, there was a moment, I don't know whether you heard it, when Nick Robinson on the BBC Today programme this morning was interviewing um, the representative of the NHS who was trying to reassure people about this Palantir contract. And Nick kept pressing them to say, look, can you opt out? And what became clear was you couldn't opt out, but you could call your local hospital or GP practice Good luck to raise through. your concerns. Right? <laughs> and I just wonder how you think about this, because when I hear this, I understand why people feel so frustrated and powerless in the face of globalization. And, you know, the FT, and I worked there for a good period of time, has long been or was for a long time the champion of a globalization that saw the benefits of a technology and and free trade globally and the capacity for the NHS to buy in effect a uh, data service from Palantir is a perfect example of a globalization but also individual powerlessness and I wonder whether or not you've come to think differently over time about the benefits and the drawbacks of that kind of globalization? 
Well, I mean, we're specifically applying it to to health, and I should say, you know, caveat, I'm not speaking for the FT's health correspondence um, on this, and I'm not very up to speed um, with the wider background to your story. But what I do know about health, you know, my own health, my family's health, and the NHS, is that we need to invest a lot more money in prevention. And that is definitely a view that I know the FT's health correspondent, Sarah Neville, shares. Because... Any insights that we can get into preventing illness before it happens, and I say this as somebody who is overweight, I know I need to do something about that. I also know I have a glass of red wine there, but it's been an autumn (laughs) statement today. Thank you very much. But I'm looking at statistics for like somebody of my age, my height, my weight. What are the risk factors for a whole range? Um, And the data shows you that the answers are not good. Now, I'm not getting any nudges from my GP, and they do know all of my vital statistics to say, you know, well, actually, have you considered this or... Have you have you considered that? I mean, there are other things too. I mean, it could be that you live in a, a particular area, or um, you know, certain complications of pregnancy could be more um, liable to, um, to to suffer those, so they could be more aware. So, I mean, I think there's definitely patterns in the data that could be learned to help us to um, heal ourselves and get better. And then, with the budgets in the NHS under so much pressure, could it also help to allocate? Um, you know, some of the spending more effectively, some of the resource um, more effectively, because if we did put more into prevention, we wouldn't have this ridiculous situation that we have at the moment. My son-in-law had to go to A&E last night um, to get a dressing changed. Um, He had an operation a couple of weeks ago, dressing fell off, and there's just nowhere where you can go um, to have quite a simple thing done. So, you know, you're four hours clogging up a and E, and you know, and it this, costs more for the and NHS. It costs, it costs a lot more. It costs a lot more. So we definitely need to do something. I appreciate that people feel that their um, <laughs> their data privacy is 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 being invaded. I'm gonna before I come back to each of you to say which of these stories should lead the news. I just want to make get a view from people in the room. Would we'll just introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Anne uh, I used to work with James, just so that we got that out of the way. Um, <laughs> today should have been, in a sense, a really big political moment. It's one of the performances of the year. Um, And it has felt, just as somebody who's sort of reading stuff, it's so small and bitty, uh, rather than taking some big sort of grip of something, not everything, but something, um, where you can say, right, we know we have a national issue here, and this is how we're going to deal with it. Um, So... uh, in political terms, this is a place where people seem to have just been arguing over margins so thin I can't see them without my glasses on. Um, and I wonder whether you, who are better judges of this, think that this will have an, a political impact on who wins the next general election. I think what Labour is doing is obviously the kind of critical point in that, and we haven't really talked on that at all. Um, now, in terms of what they do policy-wise... I think the short answer is not much different to what the Conservatives are doing. But the rhetoric, which, again, sort of started in conference season around the secure economic stuff, having um, Mark Carney 
give the endorsement to Rachel Reeves was a really big moment. And this kind of trying to build this um, sort of sense that Labour can be trusted with the economy, because, of course, traditionally, it's the Tories that you trust with economy. And the use of this term securonomics, again, the Tories are the ones that you trust with defence, not Labour. I mean, God, they nearly had Jeremy Corbyn as a prime minister. You know, it's that kind of thing that they're trying to overturn with this this kind of careful sort of uh, repetition of, of the rhetoric. So I I agree. I don't. I think it was a bit of a damp squib. I think Rishi Sunak knew it was going to be a damp squib, which is why on Monday he had this very oddly um, not announced, not trailed economic speech on Monday morning that hardly anyone turned up to and it didn't get much coverage, announcing another five set of pledges. Um, perhaps because he kind of knew that he needed to show a bit of ankle, but it not actually kind of amount to anything, um, which it would do if you announced it as a fiscal statement. So I think there is there is not much that they have they are actually able to do because of the economic constraints so it's all about words other views thoughts questions what should be in the news yes one would you just uh hi uh my name is asha and uh my listing on on the uh on the tech front is that to me as an independent observer what i see as a bigger headline or a bigger issue is that this service needs to be outsourced uh, to a company outside the UK. Uh, to me, that's a signal that we don't have tech capability, lo- I mean, we don't have capable tech locally to handle a simple blockchain project, which is what this appears to me. I mean, I don't yeah. have too much of a background, but uh, it seems to me a blockchain product, and to outsource it, is a bigger trigger or a risk that we don't have local tech capability. And how? What are, what are the steps we are taking in view of ML and AI and all these sort of things which are happening to actually shore up that weakness? I mean, I, th- I think it's not probably not fair to say it's a simple project um, because I think if it was, it would have been something would have been done by now. But I think that is sort of the bigger point behind why I think this should lead, um, is that this is a question about really states and governments, which we don't have, we're not developing this technology at home. Um, Certainly militaries are having to look to Silicon Valley for companies that are able to develop the tech that they need to buy in. So I think there's a much broader problem here, which is whereas previously, you know, Uh, the Pentagon would have been a site of innovation and engineering and that would have been at the cutting edge of military tech, software. It's Now it's private companies, it's Silicon Valley and I think we do have a problem in this country but elsewhere too that we have to look outside and we have to look to private companies to supply a lot of this stuff and that then raises big questions about scrutiny and transparency and I just to your point Anne, I think, you know, Peter Thiel is quite an extreme character and if if it was an Elon Musk company that was going to take over an NHS contract I think we would be really uncomfortable and really questioning whether this was the right move Peter Thiel is not that much less extreme I would say in terms of you know a billionaire figure Um, but I don't think it's getting the same scrutiny uh, in that sense. Well we're going to come to the end of the news meeting and 
at the end of it, we try and make a call on what should lead the news. Claire, just so you know, you're not allowed to choose your own story. So between Basher's Palantir and Cat's uh, political turmoil in the Conservative Party, which would you lead with? Well, I think the front pages are going to be leading with Cat's political turmoil in the Conservative Party for the next few days and into the weekend, would be my guess. Cat, what do you choose? National insurance or tax that's not really a tax cut or... I think or, or Palantir. I do think Palantir is interesting, but I I think uh, we need to know more. At the minute, it's as as James said, a suspicion rather than any kind of concrete thing. So I w- and and it is the autumn statement. It's got to be tax. <laughs> Basher. Uh, tax. It's very or, noble. I feel very bad <laughs> for not picking yours. All right. Well, just for all of those who like to tease me for my obsession with fiscal events, um, which is. A fair piece of teasing. I have to confess, and maybe I'm just being bloody-minded here, I would do something contrary because I suspect that most people are not going to listen much or read much about an autumn event that didn't amount to much. And so I would lead on Palantir because I think there are moments when a (laughs) technology tells you something about both the country that you're in but also uh, the way in which your life is going to be uh, run and yes possibly uh, uh, improved in service terms but changed in citizen terms. I would then run second uh, Gaza and the hostage story because I think that that's where the human heart is and remains uh, and because I'm being particularly bloody minded the third story I would run is I would run Microsoft and how it has essentially asserted control over open AI and showed that Satya Nadella is the most important chief executive in the world today not as loud as Elon Musk uh, but more influential and I would I'm afraid to say Claire kick the autumn statement into the business pages because the result is when you add up the tax cut and you take away the fiscal drag you end up more or less where we were so with that a big thank you to Basha Cummings to Kat Nealon and particularly to Claire Barrett of the FT thank you very much indeed Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. is an icon. 
She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.